Thanks very much. It's, it's a real pleasure to be here um, this evening to talk about a topic that's become actually quite hot in Japan, and interestingly so, because in comparison to a lot of other places in the world, um, the numbers of um, foreigners are actually still rather small. Um, I'm going to be presenting work research that I did a few years ago. Um, this is uh, looking at um, low-paid temporary labor migration programs or guest work programs across East Asia. Um, my current research is on, on something quite different. So while, while guest work programs typically allow people to come into a country, work and contribute, but then throw a lot of hurdles in terms of get, becoming citizens, um, I'm now, in terms of my current research, looking at the opposite, rich people who buy citizenship in countries they've never been to. But nonetheless, these guest work programs are still important and becoming much more popular as well, especially in big policy documents issued by um, you know, supranational organizations, describing them as triple win situations for the receiving country, for the sending country, and for the migrants themselves. So I think it's very important to really take a close look at how these sorts of programs operate in practice and what are some of the issues um, around organizing them. Um, the paper I'm, I'm going to discuss is, is situated within this research on migration industries. So um, Ruben Hernandez-Leon gives a pretty good definition of these as basically the um, ensemble of entrepreneurs, businesses, and services, which, motivated by the pursuit of financial gain, facilitate and sustain international migration. Um, a number of people have worked around the idea of migration infrastructures as well. Um, but in, in basically what, what this sort of research looks at are the coyotes, the brokers, remittance services, money lending services, communication services, et cetera, that help connect people between point A and point B. It's basically meso-level, kind of middle-level um, entrepreneurial activities. And what it's done in terms of the, the trajectory of migration research is add an economic side to a literature that has traditionally focused on personal networks. So it sort of looks at what are the economics and what is the profit motive doing in connecting people from point A to point B. Now, migration industries themselves can range across a broad spectrum. They can be regulated or unregulated. They can be legal or legal. They can be formally or informally organized. But the literature to date has largely focused on illegal or irregular activities, um, trafficking and transportation, for example, in which they see the state as basically creating a supportive or prohibitive context for a migration industry to start. That is, the, the governments determine what's legal or illegal, and then private actors start organizing the flows within this. But basically, the state is seen as creating the playing field rather than being an active participant in the game, in this literature on migration industries. Now, there's two exceptions to this trend in the literature. Um, one is the literature on um, how destination states have outsourced migration control, things like um, private sector detention centers, for example, or using G4S to screen visa applicants, etc. There's also the literature on sending states um, and um, 
which has often been neglected, but much, much less so in, in the past five years or so. But there's a sizable literature on labor export industries, especially coming out of studies of Southeast Asia, with the Philippines perhaps the most studied example, where the state very famously, since the 1970s or so, has been very much involved in sending labor abroad, first as a way to export unemployment, and now really as a way to try to harness remittances. In this case, though, I want to look at not how just sending states, but also receiving states can actively partner with migration industries to facilitate um, transnational mobility. Um, now, if we're going to look at this the way states partner with private actors, in effect, I want to introduce what, what I see as, as a particularly useful orienting device, which is basically a principal-agent relationship. Um, because the control of cross-border mobility rests within a state sovereign domain, when the states outsource or deputize other actors to carry out that responsibility, it, it ends up being a principal-agent relationship. You've got the principal, the state, which has control and rights over this ability of border control, delegating responsibility to an agent, which can be, in this case, either nonprofit or for-profit. Um, Defining a principal-agent relationship is the contract. The contract is what, what connects them. And the contract can be formal or informal. And of course, the principal can rescind the contract as well. So if we look at the sorts of relationships we can have, we can have the state having a formal contract with a private agent, directly outsourcing responsibility to for-profit enterprises, or a formal contract with a non-profit agent, or they can have an informal de facto devolving of responsibility to for-profit enterprises or for non-profit enterprises as well. Now, what's interesting in looking at principal-agent frameworks is that even though the, the right the, to, to control rests with the principal, the agent is carrying that out. And the agent may have different interests from the principal. Um, so, for example, um, especially in the case of labor migration, the, the principal, the state, will often have a concern about policing exit, making sure that migrants leave at the end of their contract. Whereas agents, often brokers, are less concerned about making sure people, people leave. They just want turnover of people so that they continue to make money off the, off the flow of, of people. Employers, for example, are also tend to be less concerned about exit. They want a worker for as long as they need that worker and as long as the worker is going, doing a good job. But if the economy or the economic prospects of a company begin to decline, then they want to be able to let go of the worker. But otherwise, they want to continue. So especially in terms of exit, we see a divergence of the different interests of the different actors um, involved. Um, now, to look at um, these sorts of questions of the relationship between um, these principal-agent relationships, um, I'm going to consider a couple of guestwork programs in East Asia. Um, guestwork programs are um, uh, useful to look at because it, they require a close state involvement with the state in order to exist and operate. That is, the state is involved in um, the entrance point, allowing people in, uh, as well as mobility and maintenance and what's going on while they're on the program. And the third point is exit. So those three different points are uh, important to, to consider. I'm going to look at cases as well in Taiwan, Japan, and South Korea. These, I think, are interesting comparison cases, too, because they're all 
more or less democracies. They all have fairly small programs, but in very strong economies. And all of the programs started about the same time in the early 1990s. So they become an interesting point of um, comparison. So what I'll do with the remaining time is briefly introduce the programs um, as they were. I did field work about five years ago or so. And so um, there might be some tweaks to the systems um, since then that I'm less up to date on. But basically, what we have um, in looking at the Taiwanese system, the government um, side is going to be pink, and then the, the for-profit side is, is coming out in, in, in green. Um, in Taiwan, they started off in 1992 with the Employment Services Act. The economy was beginning to take off. They were beginning to shift from military rule to more democratic rule. And basically, they decided to draw on Singapore's system for uh, regulating um, low-paid temporary workers coming into the country. Um, they have a program where you can have a three-year visa, but it is renewed up to four times. You can end up staying you know, over 10 years in the country. They have about half a million workers evenly split between manufacturing and caretaking, with um, men coming from Philippines, Thailand, and Vietnam, and women often coming from Indonesia and the Philippines. Um, the system is run by the Ministry of Labor, which for many years was known as the Council of Labor Affairs, which basically sets the parameters of the program, assesses labor market needs, um, et cetera. But the real implementation, the actual interaction with the migrants themselves, is carried out by a field of licensed brokers. So there are over a 1,000 um, broker firms dominated by about 20 very large ones and then going down to very small ones and down to sort of gray area and um, people, you know, guys with a cell phone, um, that sort of thing as well. These brokers um, uh, get a two-year permit from the government um, in order to run the program. And basically what happens is um, Employers will apply for the right to um, hire a migrant worker, a job order, and um, there's competition for these. And then brokers will pay them for the ability to fill that, pos that um, slot of work, basically by extracting um, fees from the migrants themselves. Um, the brokers will um, collect the individuals from the airport. Sometimes the brokers will have um, company ties to um, uh, brokers in, in sending countries as well. The brokers also take care of the ongoing paperwork, the medical checks, the visa renewals, um, again, charging migrants for these services, often overcharging them as well. And um, they're also in charge of exit. Now, the government polices this very strictly by requiring um, the brokers to leave a deposit with the government that is returned only when the migrant leaves for his or her home country and the broker returns with the departure slip to the government. So they go to great lengths to actually ensure that participants don't leave the program for the um, to work irregularly within the country as well. Of course, this, the numbers of people who leave these programs who become irregular workers are always very difficult to assess, but the numbers in Taiwan indicate that they probably are fairly low. Um, even though now in the past few years they've um, reformed the program so that employers can hire 
migrants directly, they still almost always go through brokers um, because it's easier for them to handle the paperwork. And what we've seen with this program is a steady expansion over time, with the numbers doubling um, over the past 10, 15 years. And what's interesting as well, they, they use a strong kind of language of market um, uh, and using competition to control the market. Uh, and they use that even when they're instituting reform. So, um, the government, for a while, there were complaints that many brokers and employers were violating the law. So the government uh, developed a market exit system where the um, brokers would be ranked A, B, or C, and those who got C two years in a row would be kicked out, et cetera. Of course, very few were, only about 1% were. But what we see in general with the Taiwanese system is a very strong example of a privately managed system based on profit and loss where the state uses competition and market mechanisms to keep the agents in line with the state's own interest. Um, and the state basically claims that this is the most efficient way to do it, and it saves resources um, for the country. In Japan, I won't go into too many details, because um, I think um, Professor Naoto will, will speak about, or Professor Higuchi will speak about this um, as well. And um, this sort of system has come out in the paper quite a lot recently. Um, what we have, though, is the, the TITP, which started in 1991, was reformed in 1993, basically through bureaucratic ad adjustments of older um, intern internship programs dating from the 1950s, even. Um, used to be three work permits. Now these have been extended to five. There's more than 150,000 participants. Right now, there's 330,000, which is sizable. It's about 20% of the foreign workforce in, in Japan. Um, a lot are coming from China, though also from Southeast Asia, and we see them in manufacturing, textiles, food processing, and metalwork. Now, this whole system is overseen by JITCO, which is kind of a quasi-governmental organization under five ministries. And But what it basically does is operate as a service provider for um, implementing organizations, which are employers, and supervising organizations which in many, many cases, about 80% of them are um, brokers. Um, the reason why the government uses this sort of language is because um, Japan very famously, until recently, was, was um, even reluctant to suggest the notion that low-paid temporary migrant workers could actually come into the country. And instead, the system was, was presented as a form of training and education, like study abroad and skills transfer um, for migrant workers, um, and you know they would liken it to you, you know, um, yeah, these the study abroad programs, and you know where you can you know refine your skills in gutting fish, or pouring cement, which you know really it takes three years to write a PhD. It does not take three years to learn how to gut a fish. So, anyways, what we have in in the end in Japan basically is. Um, so, so what we see in this, brokers take care of the migrants in almost all these stages um, it, under the guise of these implementing organizations, um, uh, it, taking over oversight, meeting migrants at the airport, taking over oversight um, where, where, where um, necessary, as well as overseeing exit. Um, there, but because the system has these um, 
disrupted chains of, chains of responsibility through these informal contracts, what we see is, for the government, a very convenient corporate veil. It all looks very nice on paper, but in practice, what is going on is quite dif different. There have been a lot of um, accusations of abuse. Uh, the UNHCR has likened it to slavery and forced labor. Um, uh, Japan was on a tier two um, status for trafficking under the program as well through all of this. So, so in a sense, you have these broken chains of responsibility through these informal relationships that also, to some degree, make expansion difficult. To the extent that the program is growing, it, the government comes under more pressure to clean it up and make sure that it operates in a much more formal and legitimate um, way. Um, South Korea, interestingly, started off, you know, a lot of South Korea's um, policies have traditionally started off looking at Japan and then going beyond them. Um, South Korea started off with the ITP, like Japan's TITP, um, but instead of JITCO, had KITCO, which was um, aligned with the Korean Federation of Small Businesses very um, closely. They also had delegation control agencies, which were basically brokers, and uh, 20 of them, that took care of, of managing the program. However, as South Korea very famously from the night, you know, in the past, but also through the 1990s and 2000s, has had a very lively um, uh, uh, kind of civic action um, public protest movements. And there were quite a lot of um, civil society uproar around abuses around the program. Then in 1993, Ro Moo Hyun was elected president, a former, civil, a former human rights lawyer who wanted to get a Nobel Prize in peace. And one of his flagship programs was reforming the guestwork program into um, what became the EPS, the Employment Permit System, in 2004. Now, the whole rhetoric around this was the idea of cutting brokers' ties, taking it out of the private sector and into the nonprofit sector in order to reduce the um, amount of debt that migrant workers were going into. What's interesting here is that they looked to Germany as a model. Here we are at the DIJ. Um, but not as Germany is usually considered with guest work programs. Now, very often people talk about Germany as a failed model of guest work programs, even though the majority of Turkish and Italian or whatever workers going to Germany in the 50s, 60s, and 70s eventually left. The majority did leave. Um, but South Korea, um, and now there's been increasing research on this, but still it's only just a small bit, um, was sending nurses to Germany to work in the 50s, in, in the, really the 60s and 70s. And so the government officials aware of that looked at how that program is run to get ideas. Um, and through that developed the EPS system. Um, now there's about 250,000 people on the program. You work for three years, but you can take it up to four years and 10 months basically because after five years you can apply for a permanent residence. So they're making sure that you still can't apply for permanent residence. Um, but the idea was to move all of this within the auspices of the government, initially under Human Resources Development Korea, a government agency, which was understaffed, and so it began to link with the business federations and with NGOs, basically non-profit, non-associative you know, act actors for organizing the program. So now about four, 40 NGOs get government funds to support the legal, medical, and linguistic um, needs of migrant workers, limiting private sector involvement. What's interesting here, too, is that so we see Korea, in a sense, moving from these informal contracts with private agents to a more formal contract with non-profit agents 
to run the program. Um, what's interesting, too, is that the number of people leaving the program to work um, irregularly, the number of quote-unquote runaways, has dropped significantly from about 50% to around 20%. And the amount of debt that migrants take on in going to these countries has, has dropped as well, from about $3,500 to about $2,800. Um, and it's interesting, too, there, there have been changes within this and some rollbacks of the extent of the rights of migrant workers in the system. But what's interesting is that even the rollbacks are still within an anti-broker, anti-market rhetoric. So employers were complaining, for example, that migrant workers could change employers too easily. If they didn't like their place of work, they could you know, go to an NGO, get a list of other employers who can hire migrant workers, and, and change their employer pretty easily. Employers don't like that. Um, if they, wa they want a worker as long as they're good and they want to let them go if, if business is doing bad. And so employ employers um, complained that not migrant workers, but their brokers were taking them to these offices and helping them change jobs, which in the interviews I did sounded like it wasn't really the case. But in order to push for change, they still kept that anti-broker rhetoric, which I found um, quite striking. Um, the final program I'll mention very quickly is the Visit and Employment Program. Um, which is largely targeted at co-ethnic um, Chinese Koreans. Um, there's about 300,000 people on the program. They can work in about 32 jobs at a slightly higher level than the people on the EPS. Um, this is run by, interestingly, the Ministry of Justice and not the Ministry of, of Labor. And you know, it's just an opportunity to come, come to the country. What people can end up doing is going to the national job centers that are available for um, Korean nationals and um, get jobs um, through that. So in a sense, we have a, an informal um, relationship with the nonprofit agent, actually, um, government um, uh, organizations in, um, formula, in, in, in terms of the way the, the programs operate. So if we look at um, the way these fall out in terms of um, principal-agent relationships, we've got the Taiwan's managed, uh, privately managed system, a formal contract using market mechanisms, very strictly run, um, and you know, lo lots of complaints about abuse, but with very high exit numbers. It's similar to Singapore. Singapore also has this. The GCC countries like the United Arab Emirates, Kuwait, etc., tend to have those as well. In Japan, we have um, a private agent with an informal contract, kind of an un unofficial collaboration with brokers who are really the ones running the programs, like what we used to have in Korea in the 90s, um, as well as um, the flying visa process, in the, in, which we find in the Middle East as well. Um, formal contracts and nonprofit agents, um, we have publicly discharged programs like the EPS in South Korea, but that was also the case in South Africa with the labor migration program run by TEBA, um, which was privatized in, the two, in 2005. So TEBA eventually moves over to a formal contract. Um, the U.S. Bracero program looked like a nonprofit agent as well. And then also pretty rare, they're, they're hard to find examples, but these publicly overseen programs like Korea's VEP, you could you know, also look at, say, New Zealand's Working Holidaymaker program as an example of, of one of those um, as well. So I offer this as a way to look at how these different principal-agent relationships affect um, 
the organization of migrant worker programs based on degree of informality and informality, whether formal programs make direct intervention easier should problems arise. Informal programs, we have a lot of light touch government intervention with workarounds. Or for-profit, in which case the government tends to have greater delegation of responsibilities, and we see the programs expanding over time as for-profit actors try to get more profit. Um, or non-profit, where we see greater state control, um, the state maintaining, delegating, in effect, much less um, of the control of, of these systems as well. So I'm introducing this as a way to maybe think about Japan within context, both um, in terms of the way its um, low-paid temporary worker programs are operating now and the way they're, they're changing um, in the future. So I'll, I'll stop there and turn it over to Professor Higuchi. Today, I would like to talk about uh, recent changes in the immigration policy in Japan, uh, especially focusing on a comparison between Nikkeijin Japanese descendants and uh, uh, <coughs> new visa category for uh, specified skilled workers. I think most of the people uh, people coming here know about the overview of the <coughs> new immigration act, but I will explain first because uh, there are two kinds of visa categories, skilled worker one and two. And one is uh, extension of uh, technical interns, which is notorious to uh, as a okay, hotbed of uh, labor exploitation, but it opens the front door to import unskilled workers. Although the government officially keeps a policy not to admit unskilled workers, because uh, the government still uh, asserts that uh, they are not unskilled workers, so they did not change the policy. But uh, what is new, especially new, uh, in terms of, uh, what can you say, uh, status of migrants, is a skilled worker too. Because uh, it, first, uh, it prepared the path to permanent settlement for broker workers. And uh, <coughs> worker too, workers too can <coughs> invite their families. So. This is actually a uh, permanent migrants. But what I want, I, I like to say is that uh, the government learned much from experiences to admit Nikkeji instead of uh, technical interns. Because behind the scene, of the new immigration policy, there is a new migration regime for Nikkeijin because the government uh, prepared a new visa for the fourth generation Japanese descent last year. Uh, until then, the fourth generation of Japanese descendants could live in only as dependent families of the third generation. So uh, <coughs> if they are adult or if they are married, uh, they cannot uh, enter, the, enter Japan as Nikkeijin. Nikkeijin means uh, Japanese descendants. But uh, the government prepared a visa for fourth generation, ages between 18 to 30. But this means not a okay, see, new, new preparation for visa categories, but this is virtually crossing the side door to import ethnic migrant workers. It's my interpretation to the new policy. 
because there are two categories of side door workers in Japan. One is a Japanese descendant who are officially uh, regarded as uh, okay, families of Japanese to visit Japan and then they are allowed to work. And the other is technical interns who are working in Japan to, for technical transfers to uh, developed countries. But there we can <coughs> find the convergence of the two because the fourth generations are allowed five years stay, which is not renewable. So they, they can <coughs> live in Japan on, on the maximum of five years, unless they married to uh, uh, Japanese or uh, any uh, or others with uh, uh, legend visas. And they are required uh, the <coughs> Japanese N4 level Although they are allowed to engage in any jobs with uh, other Nikkeijin, but <coughs> they are not allowed to um, live permanently in Japan. And uh, unlike uh, the <coughs> Nikkeijin up to third generation, they are requested to pass the Japanese test. It is more similar to specified skilled worker one because they Although they <coughs> have to work in specified jobs, only uh, okay, see, they are allowed to work in uh, specific industries or 14, uh, <coughs> 14 industries with uh, uh, labor shortage. But they can live five years, and which is upgradable to uh, skilled worker too. And they are sought to be upgraded from interns. This means that government evaluation is admission of Nikkeiji is a failure and interns a success. So my question today is that uh, what has changed under the new immigration regime and why? So first, I will change. Uh, I stress the changes in the 1990 migration regime to uh, 19, uh, 2019 migration regime, and I will evaluate the problem of the new migration policy, feasibility of the neoliberal meritocracy, and the uh, need for more proactive policies. And usually, the admission of Nikkeijin is sought to solve the labor shortages uh, during the economic boom around 1990. But the beginning of the <coughs> uh, preparation of visa is quite different. They are based on the idea of nationalism because they began, they, they mean the, <coughs> the Minister of Justice began to consider a visa equivalent to third generation Koreans for third generation Nikkeiji. This is quite before the economic boom because it was uh, <coughs> based on the Japan-Korea bilateral negotiation in 1985. And the visa for third generation Nikkeijin was prepared in 1989 and enforced in 1990. So it is uh, more, more precise to understand that the demand for Nikkeijin workers was combined 
with the principle of just sanguinis. And the technical intern started in actually in 1993, but uh, the, before there has been training systems existed in, since the 1960s, but mm, the nature has greatly changed in 1990s. This is a, what can I say, the main feature of the 1990 uh, immigration law that, uh, that uh, <coughs> prepared visa for certain in Beijing. But during the period after the <coughs> economic bubble, it has happened to come down with Nikkeiji. Uh, the, the number of Nikkeiji steadily increased after the collapse of the economic bubble until 2008. But the task force of Minister of Justice regarded Nikkeiji migration as a failed policy. And meanwhile, technical interns are extended to work up to three years compared with the one-year program before. And they have been, I can say, for more or less uh, segregated in the labor market because Nikkeijin used to work in uh, export industries such as car and electronics industry, but uh, mostly interns worked in more labor-intensive industries uh, like textile garments or uh, agriculture or fisheries. But then the Deputy Minister of Justice and now Defense Minister uh, Yohei, uh, no, 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 Taro Kono said in 2006, it is failure to accept Nikkeiji. Japan lacked integration policies. This is based on the reality that uh, lack of mobility from agency workers at first, Nikkeiji was most privileged among the newcomers because they enjoyed their stable <coughs> visa status and unlimited uh, uh, <coughs> uh, choice of jobs. But most of they were incorporated into uh, agency workers or haken rodosha and the situation did not change even after one uh, decade or so, most of the workers are still work, working in uh, <coughs> other agency workers. This is quite contrary to uh, uh, common sense of migration research because uh, most migrants started from the bottom of the labor market, but they uh, <coughs> go up the ladder of the labor market, uh, learning skills or learning language. But in the case of uh, Nikkeiji, um, such kind of uh, uh, social mobility did not occur. So the <coughs> policies of Japanese government are getting more unsympathetic to Nikkeiji. So <coughs> especially after the Lehman shock, because the uh, majority of Nikkeiji lost jobs during the Lehman shock. And the government introduced a notorious pay-to-go policy, which uh, paid uh, about uh, 300,000 <coughs> yen for those uh, lost jobs and uh, go home. But at the same time, the government prepared uh, launched a department for integration with Nikkeijin in 2010 and uh, prepared a language course and uh, <coughs> 
uh, launched a five-year project for education of children. So they uh, <coughs> prepared uh, uh, some kind of uh, <coughs> forced repatriation and integration. But at the same time, what happened in Japan is the expansion of technical interns. Uh, <coughs> it has changed uh, the system in 2010. The one-year training period was replaced by the longer intern system. And the government insisted on the technical interns, even though the, there are repeated criticism by U.S. government department state, which uh, <coughs> which uh, criticized Japan as a uh, <coughs> no policy for no 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 policy no, no promoting a policy for trafficking. So then the government enacted. Uh, technical Intern Training Act, which extended the period of uh, technical interns from three to five years. So this is a kind of contrasting policies, and uh, the result is also clear. At first, there has been ma more Brazilians <coughs> in 2007, but the number of interns were <coughs> surplus the number of Nikkeji. And because of the uh, lack of mobility and uh, uh, because of the, okay, the getting tired of unstable jobs, the number of Latin Americans have decreased by uh, 40 to 20 percent. Although the number is uh, small, uh, a little recovering because of the recession of Brazil. So, what we should understand from the changes is that from blood ties to meritocracy. So, <coughs> because Japan used to be a more willing host of Nikkeijin, but for first generation Nikkeijin, Japan turned out to be a reluctant host. They required language skills and non-renewable and uh, family unification is not allowed. So, although the government estimated the <coughs> maximum quota for first generation for 4,000 a year, but actually only 43 persons uh, acquired a job and acquired a visa, and only, three, three, uh, only, only 33 persons entered Japan. It is so demanding to create the criteria. I also uh, become one of, uh, one of them as a supporter, and I what can I say? I uh, lent it money of about uh, one hundred thousand yen for <coughs> paperwork, and it took three three months. He's working now in Japan, but it took too much from him. And the, on the other hand, the government paved the way for permanent settlement to specified skilled workers, one and two. Uh, they are able to change jobs within the same industry. And uh, family uni uni unification is allowed for skilled two. 
unable to apply for permanent residence after five-year jobs as skilled work to workers. It is a long way because most of they work uh, <coughs> five uh, five years for technical interns and then more five years as a uh, uh, skilled worker one and then after 10 years they are allowed to become a skilled worker too. So it is too long to take a uh, more stable status but they actually they paid, the government paid away for permanent settlement. Specific skilled workers are allowed to live in Japan for longer times, but they have to survive neoliberal meritocracy. This, in, this, in this context, neoliberal means that uh, uh, they have to manage on their own. So they are not provided opportunities to learn Japanese course for jobs. They are simply there are simply uh, Japanese courses for everyday conversation, only uh, once or twice a week for two hours, which is not useful for uh, <coughs> acquiring Japanese skills uh, used for jobs. This is a governmental policy. and But those acquired language skills on their own can climb up the ladder to specific skilled worker too. And technical interns are sought to learn Japanese equivalent to uh, the N4 level, and they can automatically, not automatically, but uh, nearly automatically change a job, uh, change a visa to specific skilled workers. And <laughs> after five years, uh, they are also change a visa to specific skilled worker too, but the what the requirement is uh, imposed is not so clear now but they have to survive for five year five year and at last they can gain their more stable status but i would like to emphasize that uh, language matters this is uh, data on based on my field work in argentina and japan in this means that uh, the <coughs> Japanese skills, the relation between Japanese skills and uh, the jobs gained. This means that uh, full-time or self-employment or regular work are not accessible for those <coughs> who use uh, Japanese only everyday conversation or below or less. For those who have good command or friend in Japanese can have a <coughs> chance to get more stable jobs. And recruitment network is more important uh, because if you find jobs through migrant network or family network, most of work are agency works or part-time, full-time or self-employment employed is uh, <coughs> uh, below 10%, but if you use impersonal methods such as media or uh, hard work, the rate will <coughs> jump up. But if you find job through Japanese, the 
accessibility to full-time or self-employment, employed jobs is much higher. Nearly 40% can uh, gain uh, regular work or uh, self-employment because of the what can I say, uh, advantage of Japanese to uh, labor market, access to labor market. But if you <coughs> get contact with the Japanese, you have to you have you have to have a command of Japanese. So the command of Japanese is the minimum requirement to get stable jobs or for social mobility. But actually, most of the <coughs> jobs are gained through uh, migrant or family networks, which is useful to get, what can I say, uh, migrant jobs with unstable or uh, no promotion. But <coughs> there are only small people who get jobs through Japanese. So it's necessary to provide chance to, for example, uh, to gain language skills. But the government is demanding too much and serving too little. Uh, when I conducted feedback during Lehman Shock, this is the most important lesson because uh, those who have the command of Japanese could change jobs even during the recession. So uh, needed a what can I say, language course which is efficient to use in the business scene but the government established a very modest language program with limited effects which is uh, which start from uh, uh, 120 or 180 hours, but uh, for example, in Germany, it is expected to learn uh, six, 600 hours, which is much, much longer than the Japanese case. <coughs> and I would like to uh, tell the Japanese government that there are pitfalls of the cheap way because uh, the government bears the burden of learning Japanese on their own. The migrants uh, bear their burden of learning Japanese on their own during uh, while they work hard. It is very mm, difficult, actually, because uh, most of the Nikkeijin Almost 80% um, of the Nikkeijin do not speak Japanese fluently because they work too much, too, too long, to arm um, as much as possible. So <coughs> as a result, there is little productivity gains after uh, five or 10 years. And uh, it is also a uh, uh, it, is, it will also bring about a failed growth strategy because uh, the <coughs> stagnation of productivity do not bring out uh, economic growth as uh, the government expected. So there's a need to at least provide intensive language courses for new policies. Thank you.